All right, so this week we address a hard saying of Jesus that has been applied by the church to the Lord's Supper. And then once we're done untying this knot today, we'll observe the Lord's Supper. There are two extreme views of the Lord's Supper. And the first view is called transubstantiation. Have you ever heard that term before? Those of you who grew up Catholic like me, you are very familiar with this. This view has been held by the majority of Christians throughout history. So that's the majority view. This view holds that the literal body and blood of Jesus is meant to be enjoyed literally. Jesus' body is no longer here, so therefore a priest takes literal bread and literal wine and he transubstantiates it so that it becomes literal body and blood of Jesus, even though it looks and it tastes like bread and watered-down wine. The other view, which I'm saying is the other extreme, is called the memorial view. It was developed later in the Reformation, and it's held by the majority of Southern Baptists. If you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, of which this is a part of as well, we are a Southern Baptist church, you have been acclimated to this memorial view. And this view holds that the Lord's Supper is simply, merely, only a memorial looking back at the life, death, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. But both of these views, transubstantiation and the memorial view, I believe, cuts through the knot instead of untying the complexity of the Lord's Supper. One view goes too far, and one view doesn't go far enough. So if you've been attending a Baptist church for long, and if you've been attending Heritage for some time, you've been hearing a little bit of contrast and a little bit of conflict, a little bit of push, a little bit of tension every single time we observe the Lord's Supper, right? Because as your pastor, I'm trying to clarify for you as best as I can so I can stand before Jesus with a good conscience one day as to what the Lord's Supper is about and what it's not about, who it is for and who it is not for. Now, if you've been attending about this church for long, you too may have too small a view of the Lord's Supper. It's a seven to ten minute tradition you just got to get through, and it doesn't really do anything for you. And if that's kind of your view this morning, that the Lord's Supper doesn't do much for you, you have to acknowledge, therefore, that American culture and its push for consumerism, that things have to do things for you, that you've allowed to creep into your relationship with God. Both views fail to connect today's hard saying, verse 53, with the feeding of the 5,000, which we're going to review today, and to Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospel of John that he is living water, he's water for the soul, and that he's bread of life. So today we're going to untie this knot together, and we're going to look at application for us as Christians here at Branchton for this chapter of our life. We are not going to affirm transubstantiation, but on the other hand, we can't just stop at the memorial view. So after we untie this knot together and go to application, as a church family, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I hope it's sweet for you today. Let's get to our proposition. So the truth that I want you to pull away from this, that I believe will be faithful to John 6, is that Jesus is food and drink to the soul. 
that nourishes the Christian for this life and for the next. Because what we're going to see in a moment, this, these verses are filled with eschatology. So it's not just for this life. It's for the end and for what comes next. So let's revisit the context of John chapter 6 for a moment, okay? Jesus fed a crowd of over 5,000 people on the Sea of Galilee with five loaves and two fish. Scholars, liberal critics, they've really struggled with this act of Jesus for the ages. But we looked at this chapter in depth in our Savior series a couple of years ago. Jesus directly connected this event as one of his many signs, like Jesus turning water into wine. Why did Jesus do that? To show us his power over the natural elements and to show him that he is true drink. But eventually, many of these Jews, the next day, they, who enjoyed the bread so much, and I totally get it because I love bread as well. I cannot imagine what this bread tasted like. But eventually, they pursued Jesus. They had to find him because they wanted more bread. And eventually, they catch up with Jesus on the other side of Galilee. And I want you to listen for a moment to how Jesus spoke to the crowd. In verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the sign, but because you ate those loaves and you were filled. You see what's going on right here? Let's talk about it. Jesus called the crowd out, as he usually does, because they sought him for selfish reasons. They wanted their bellies to be filled because yesterday they ate delicious bread. But that bread is no longer in their system. They are no longer enjoying it, so they want more of it. And that reveals a little bit of the nature of cravings that you and I have. We eat something, we ingest something, we put something into our bodies. It has a certain effect in us biologically, physiologically, and it makes our bodies want more. So we can't be too tough on these Jews, right? They simply are doing what's human nature. They had an awesome meal, and they want to replicate it, okay? We do the same thing. But in the midst of this, I want you to see that Jesus calls this event a sign. And we learned a lot about signs during the Savior series. Remember, signs point, right? And no one goes to golden arches and expect that a drive through burger is going to appear at the golden arch. You don't go to the sign expecting the reality. The sign points to the reality. This is all things we've covered together as a church family. Signs point to the thing itself. It's not meant to be the sign or the power, the thing itself. All right, so that's a quick review. The feeding of the 5,000 is a sign. Those five loaves and two fish were signs and symbols. The Lord's Supper also is a sign. This means we do not expect these signs to do something literally and physically in us. So we ask, okay, what was the point of the feeding of the 5,000? Why or what did the five loaves and two fish point to? And then what is the point of doing this the first Sunday, every single month, year in and year out together? What does the Lord's Supper point to? That's what we're seeking to untie today. And before we get to it, I'm giving you the answer, and then we'll get back to the question and the tension. The answer comes in verse 35. I want you to take a look at it. 
eventually Jesus says this to them, to the crowd. He says, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now that's a grand claim, right? And we wonder, does Jesus mean this physically? These people are after literal physical bread. Is he promising that we will never experience physical hunger and thirst ever again if we are a Christian? That's what we have to untie today. The feeding of the 5,000 and the Lord's Supper point to Jesus as the only one who can truly satisfy your ultimate hunger and thirst. Every time you get hungry, so for guys, I'm giving you a sneak peek to our kindred, those of you who are staying afterwards, Loretta has made us French bread pizza. And as, your, and as your belly begins to grumble for it for a moment, it's a sign. Jesus allowed hunger to be experienced by you. He experienced hunger to reveal something to you. That your deepest, most pressing hunger isn't for that French bread pizza. It's for something deeper. These are, so therefore, eating is just a sign that's meant to point to something deeper. The problem as human beings is that we fixate and we make ultimate the things that were never meant to be ultimate. That French bread pizza that you're going to savor today is not, to, not meant to be the ultimate answer to your real hunger. But you can take French bread pizza and fill it in with everything else you turn to instead of Jesus. That's the point of Jesus' comments here in John chapter 6. Nothing can satisfy your soul like the bread of life and water to the soul. So this means you don't merely have physical hunger and thirst. You have spiritual hunger and thirst as well. You can eat bread and drink water to satisfy your physical hunger and thirst. And here's the thing. All people at all places seek someone or something to satisfy spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. But Jesus is here this morning through John chapter 6, still today to say that only he, exclusively, only he can satisfy your soul's hunger and thirst. He is bread of life. He is living water. So if you aren't a Christian, even if you're a church attender, if you aren't a Christian, this is going to clash with everything inside of you. Because there are some good and deeply satisfying experiences on this earth. And Jesus has told you, you are a fool. If you think those experiences are ultimate. There's one ultimate, and that's myself. And that rubs you the wrong way. We've all been there, right? And many of us still struggle between what's fool's gold and what's gold. What's counterfeit, what's reality. But I want you to think about the Lord's Supper for a moment. Jesus said, remember, the Lord's Supper is a carryover, in essence, of a Jewish activity. We always have to remember this. The Lord's Supper was the way that Christians looked back, the way the Jews looked back at the Passover meal. This meal made in haste because the angel was coming to deal with the firstborn. So they had to hurry up. They ate with their staff in hand, unleavened bread, you know? Jesus said that the Passover meal is a sign that points to himself as being the ultimate Passover lamb. The reason why we don't, during Easter weekend, literally sacrifice an unblemished lamb 
because now Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. And once again, Hebrews teaches us this, and eventually before our time here together is done, we have to go through Hebrews together. But Jesus said that the Lord's Supper now is a sign as well. And it is a sign specifically, and we'll read this in a couple minutes, of the new covenant. This means that you don't get a new heart simply because you eat these elements that our deacons prepared this morning. These signs do nothing but merely to point. Okay? We're good? So taking the signs, these elements of the Lord's Supper, means that as far as we can tell, you've experienced the new covenant. And that new covenant is God doing a spiritual heart transplant, taking out your old heart about his son and putting in a new heart for his son. Not perfect, but new. Therefore, this means only those who have truly experienced this new covenant work of God should enjoy the Lord's Supper. That's the theory. The practice is hard, and Christ's church has had difficulty applying this practice throughout the ages. But it does not make sense for a person who refuses to enjoy Jesus as bread of life and living water to therefore take the Lord's Supper, because that's what this sign points to. I can't change that this ring right here is a sign of my marriage covenant, and therefore I can't change that these signs point to those who experience and enjoy the new covenant, because Jesus said, this is a new covenant which I make in my blood. So one of the goals of Jesus in John 6 is for his people to see and to savor him as their ultimate food and water for the soul. That's the point of the feeding of the 5,000, and that's the point of the Lord's Supper. And with that, now we can go through the verses of our scripture reading. In point one, you're going to see the call to enjoy Jesus as ultimate food and drink, to experience life and resurrection. So after verse 35, the crowd of the 5,000 were really confused because they kept asking themselves, how can Jesus be my bread? I just want him as my bread maker. I want him for what he can do for me when I'm hungry, when I'm jonesing, when I'm in a difficult situation. How can he be my bread? And they began to turn on one another. So let's take a look at verse 52. John tells us that the Jews began to argue with one another. And here's what they said to each other. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? The crowd began to argue over how Jesus can be literally enjoyed as bread. How can Jesus give them his body to eat? They're good Jews, and they know that Jewish law condemned cannibalism. That was one of the practices of the nations around them. And God, whether it was Old Testament or New Testament, has always called his covenant people to live, to speak, and to act differently than the culture around them. It doesn't matter if it was the Jews, Israel, or the church. God has always called his covenant people to be different than those around him. So those ethnicities around the nation of Israel were cannibals. They even ate their children. So what we need to answer is this. Did Jesus mean this statement literally? Because even before we get to verse 53 and the hard saying, 
If Jesus isn't after something literal and physical, then why have Christians taking this to be literal and physical throughout the ages? Now, to answer that question, we have to understand how God wants his people to read and understand his word. Now, there is tremendous confusion on this topic. And I pray one of the things that whenever my time is here, done here at Heritage, that we can say this, that your pastor has taught you how to clearly read, understand, and apply your Bible. American culture teaches you that truth is subjective. Truth is whatever you want it to mean. So if you want the sky to be purple today, American culture will tell you the sky is purple, therefore. Truth is whatever you take it to mean. The devastating consequence of this humanistic teaching is this. It sets you up to be the ultimate standard as to what is true. And number one, that's too much burden for you to bear. It's too much burden for this American culture to tell you, you are the ultimate authority. You get to determine what to do with your life because you are a frail, limited human being just like me. It's too much pressure for us, but that's what culture does. It sets you up to be the ultimate determining factor of what is true. And people today, they flaunt the idea of personal interpretation. Have you heard that before? That means you can have your own personal interpretation of the Bible. The person next to you can. Your pastor can. And you know what? We're all right. You can have yours. The person next to you can have theirs, and pastor can have his. But Peter sets the record straight, and we look at this on a Wednesday night last year in our Sola Scriptura study, where Peter made a comment like this. He says, there is one interpretation of Scripture. He directly says it in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's not, here's what Catholics believe, here's what Presbyterians believe, here's what those pesky Southern Baptists believe, and here's what I believe. And they're all right. Instead, it's this. What does God say? And how are we going to apply what God says to our congregation? So what does God say? And how do we put our lives and our church under what Jesus says? Personal interpretation was a term that was coined by our Martin Luther. So it has Reformation roots. But I need to give you the context of this. In the 16th century... As we've discussed before, you could not read, interpret, and apply the Bible for yourself. You had no access to it. This is before Gutenberg. This is before the printing press. Bibles were copied word by word by scribes. A lot of the errors that liberal critics like to say today are truly just an error of copying. One manuscript here, they're copying another manuscript there, and it's errors of the eye. Just like if I gave you a letter and asked you to translate it and copy it perfectly, there's going to be a mistake somewhere because we are humans and we err. Those are the errors of the Bible. But you had no access to it. And you had to rely on the Catholic Church to read the Bible for you, to read it out loud for you, and then to tell you what the Bible means. Meaning, for 1,500 years, in the general sense, the Bible and its interpretation was Catholic, unified, one. Luther came on the scene like a firestorm, and he burned up this idea. Because one of his burdens 
was for every Christian to have a copy of the Bible in their native tongue so they can read the Bible for themselves. So what did Luther do? Under threat from the Catholic Church, if anybody sees Luther, tell him he is a pig that has ravaged God's vineyard. We are going to kill him. So he hid himself for a while, and he translated the Bible, the New Testament, from Greek into German. So everyday German farmers could read the Bible for themselves, the common German. That is what Luther meant by personal interpretation. American culture has spun this because in about the 1950s or so, something became ingratiated in the education system called reader's response. I know this because I have to teach this still to high school kids. Reader's response means you get to read a text and you get to determine whatever that artist, that poet, that writer means. And you're right. That is what's been taught to you since you were a kid here in America. And it's grossly wrong. But then they apply and say this is personal interpretation. And Luther would be like, what? No. We are still bound to understand and get to what God means so that we can apply it to our lives. Personal interpretation means the reader has a personal responsibility to read, understand, and apply God's interpretation for their lives. And with that, let's look at the hard saying of Jesus. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. So the question is, does Jesus mean this verse literally, plainly? Is Jesus plainly asking us to be cannibals? Does Jesus literally mean that we are to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And the Catholic response would be yes. But Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven. Catholics believe this with every fabric of their being, just like you do. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the ascension. He's not literally here. So an idea began to develop over the ages. Literal bread and literal wine must become literal body and literal blood of Jesus. That's how we, as the church, can be faithful to the words of Jesus here in verse 53. And I do believe that the original developers of transubstantiation had some desire to be faithful and true to what Jesus is saying right here. This is a hard saying. There's no mistake, right, church? This is hard. But their error is that of how to properly interpret the Bible. When the plain and literal reading and understanding of the words and phrases of Jesus seem illogical, that we cannot go there for another reason in the Bible, we have to go to the figurative. And that's one of the steps for you reading your Bible. I pray that you get over these years. So therefore, when Jesus says in John, I am the door of the sheep, remember that? He does not mean that he is a literal door. It is a figure of speech. So that we can un then they could under apply their understanding of what doors are to be the door for the sheep pen and apply it to the nature of their relationship with Jesus. No one walked away after Jesus said this later in the Gospel of John and thought, Jesus is my door, I can't wait to swing him open. When Jesus refers to his flesh and blood, therefore, he's also using it figuratively. We use our understanding 
of what Jesus did with his body and his blood on the cross, and we apply it to our understanding of what he's therefore saying about true life, now and the life to come. That's the interpretation. Now let's keep going with verse 54. Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And if you could read Greek, it would say, thou raise him up on the eschaton. Your deacon just went, literally, he did that just now. Verse 54 tells us of the spiritual benefit of eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. You can see why a Catholic would be serious about transubstantiation. They eat the Eucharist. If they eat it, they will have eternal life. And Jesus will resurrect them at the eschaton. But verse 54 is an extension, is an application of Jesus' body and blood as signs, as symbols, as figures. Those who experience and enjoy Jesus above all things will find life today and resurrection at the eschaton. That's what Jesus is saying. The point of the feeding of the 5,000 and the hard saying of Jesus in verse 53 is for all of his people to experience life and resurrection by deeply enjoying him above all things. This means that bread and wine can satisfy your hunger, your physical hunger and thirst, but bread and wine can never satisfy your deepest hunger and thirst, which is your spiritual thirst, your soul's thirst. This means, in application, that romantic relationships, marriage, children, family, your friendships, your job, money, hobbies, nothing can satisfy your soul's thirst more deeply and more satisfyingly than Jesus. That's what this means. So, in summary, we read the Bible by taking it as plainly and as literally as we can. It's the way we read newspapers. It's the way we read literature and fiction. It's the way we should read the Bible as well, as literally as we can. And when we cannot, because we know there's another verse somewhere, we begin to take the road of the figurative. But as we do this, we do this with Luther's idea of Scripture illumines Scripture. This means you don't get to insert yourself in whatever verse you're reading that it means whatever you want it to mean. There's a promise to this, a very faithful promise, that if you want to know what something says in this verse, in Torah, in the Psalms, in the Gospels, in Paul's writing, in Revelation, God is going to be faithful to show you to have another piece of Scripture elsewhere to give the illuminated meaning of it. Therefore, you don't have to be the ultimate determining factor as to what Jesus means. He is the ultimate determining factor because John 1 claims that Jesus is the Logos. He is the reason. He is the Word of God. And He will tell us what He means. So that's what Peter means by one interpretation. Scripture illumines Scripture. We're good? Yes. So, applied to this, does Jesus 
want his people to eat his body and drink his blood? And the answer is a resounding no. Does Jesus want his people to eat and drink transubstantiated bread and wine? The answer is no. But, on the other hand, Catholics are right. There is far more going on at the Lord's table than just simply remembering Jesus. And we're going to get to that in a couple minutes. Verse 55, Jesus claims, My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The body and blood of Jesus is true food, true drink. You could say the truest of food, the truest of drink. This is why here at Heritage we say, and we inject this into our covenant affirmations, that we are to love Jesus as our ultimate affection and our ultimate authority. Doesn't mean we don't have other affections in this life. Make no mistake, church, Tisa is one of my highest affections. She's not the highest. Tisa has some authority in my life as my spouse, but she's not the ultimate authority. That's reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. What this means is that Jesus is clarifying what your soul is really hungry and thirsty for. Now, I want you to think back to the temptation of Jesus by Satan. We recently read this this past month if you're doing our reading plan. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was literally and physically hungry. No doubt. And Satan comes along in the temptation, like he did with Adam and Eve, and Adam failed. Now, Satan comes alongside Jesus. And how did Satan tempt Jesus? He tempted Jesus with transubstantiation. If you're the Messiah, if you are God, you can turn this stone into bread. That's what transubstantiation is. Changing something at its most elemental form. But Jesus rejected the call to transubstantiate. And we must pray for our Catholic friends that they too one day, through a work of reformation in the Catholic Church, to reject the call of transubstantiation. That's my hope for my Catholic family. But take a look at what Jesus said to Satan in Matthew 4.4. 4. Jesus said to him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know what Jesus is doing here? He is quoting from Torah. He's quoting from the law, which Jesus did all the time. He quoted from Deuteronomy, from the law, and from the Psalms. And from the prophets, all three portions of Scripture. We do not live by bread alone, by physical bread alone. The complexity of a human being is far deeper than that. We are more than physical appetites. That's what Jesus is speaking to here. You are more than your physical appetites. We have to realize this. We live by God's word alone. That's how Jesus could go the 41st day and not have something to nourish his physical hunger. As literal bread nourishes the body, Jesus claims that Scripture nourishes the soul. This means that you still today must 
feast on scripture, even more than you feast on bread. And I love bread. I love it. You know this. Jesus calls himself the word of God. Jesus breathed out the scriptures through the prophets and the apostles. This means for you still today that as serious as you are about satisfying physical hunger and thirst, you need to be even more serious, even more passionate, even more deliberate about satisfying spiritual hunger. If you've ever been away with me, and you can ask my wife, she's not in here right now. If you've ever been away with me, you know how I meticulously plan out the next meals. Mm-hmm. Like the staff has been away from me. They know, like, it's on the agenda. Where we're going, what time, I already know what I want. All right? And Jesus is saying, as serious as you are about satisfying those pesky, little, inconsequential, insignificant physical hungers and thirst, you must be even more serious about attending to your soul's thirst. Because as a human being, your deepest need is not your physical hunger and thirst, but your soul's thirst. The tragic psychological failing of humanity is that we use physical things to cover up our soul's thirst. And it can work for a while, but it can't work forever because God designed no physical thing to replace him. Enjoy Jesus as your ultimate food and drink, and you will be satisfied in this life. After I feast on filet, on my drive home, I do not crave a drive through burger. I never have, and I never will. And as you feast on God's word, the promise is you will no longer crave the things that you used to replace Jesus with. That's how we untie this knot. And now we go to application, okay? Here's the application for us as a church. We need to, you need to, I need to refocus. We need to refocus our views of the Lord's Supper. And here's our focus. That it is an expression of the church's enjoyment of Jesus. That the way you take these elements in a moment is meant for you to be a depiction of how you're currently enjoying Jesus in your personal life. That's our focus. There's more focus to the Lord's Supper. But right now we're focusing on this element because John 6 does. Jesus did not intend for his word in John 6 to literally mean that you and I must eat his flesh and drink his blood by the transubstantiated elements of the Lord's Supper. Jesus means, however, that if you long for him above food, above drink, above substances, above sex, above hobbies, above all those things, if you long for him to be ultimate affection and authority, he will nourish you for this life and he'll resurrect you for the next. That's the teaching of John 6. Enjoy Jesus as ultimate food and drink, and you will experience life today, no matter how hard it is, and it is good in America. And you'll experience resurrection at the eschaton. So we ask, how does this apply to the Lord's Supper for us? Just normal Christians living in the 21st century in America here in Branchton. What does this mean for us as a congregation? And with that, I just want to situate these last two verses and then move to application. Verse 56, Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Experiencing the Lord's Supper means that
that you have an abiding relationship with him. Not perfect. Abiding. It remains. It's here today, here tomorrow. It was here yesterday. All the ups and downs of your life, it's always remained. Something takes place in the Christian, the one who enjoys Jesus as ultimate affection and authority. Jesus says they abide in him, and he abides in them. Christ is in the Christian, and the Christian is in Christ. Now, we looked at this word abide during our Savior series, and the Greek word means to remain, to dwell, but my favorite is this because of the modern connection, to take up residency in. And I pointed you to the idea of a hospital environment that as interns, resident interns, like they live at the hospital during their residency. That's what Jesus does in you. But not just for like two or three years, a couple of rotational rounds of different divisions of medicine, they move on. It's a permanent residency. It's better than what those interns do at the hospital. The genuine Christians, although it's imperfect, they have a desire to enjoy Jesus as food and drink for their souls because Jesus dwells in them and resides in them. So the Christian life and the Christian lives the rest of life knowing Jesus is with them and he is in them. What a confidence we have, right? Now verse 57. Jesus says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats of me, who enjoys me, he will also live because of me. Jesus claims here that those who enjoy him as food and drink, as sustenance for the soul, will live because of him. This is future. This is future promise. This is pointing to resurrection. You and I are physically, literally alive right now. Our spirits are alive. So this is a reference to the future, to the eschaton. Those who desire Jesus as their ultimate food and drink will live again because he is their ultimate affection and authority. And that is the meaning of Jesus' heart saying in verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. That's the interpretation. So we ask, how do we rightly apply this to the Lord's Supper? Because sometimes you and I focus, lose focus. That's why the hymn writer crafted a line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? Prone to leave the God I love. This especially happens with the fundamentals of being a Christian. For some reason, I think it's also a byproduct of our educational system. I mean, there, there's primary, there's secondary, there's post-secondary, there's graduates, there's postgraduate, And it, it implies the things you learn primarily are things you don't need anymore. You never need to revisit. You got it. And we apply that to Christianity. But Jesus like, no, no, it's not that the postgraduate is more important than what you learn primarily. All of this is primary, and we lose focus of that. That's why many of us think that the gospel is for those who aren't Christians. But I need the gospel every bit as much as I did when I was 15 years old. In fact, I could argue that I need the gospel more today. So you and I need to refocus our view of the Lord's Supper as our personal, it is personal, but it's also our corporate expression of our enjoyment of Jesus as ultimate food and drink for our lives. And this begins with a right understanding of the Lord's Supper. Now, some of you may say, Pastor, why does it matter? Like, what does this do to unity? 
Why does it matter what you believe, what I believe, what other people believe about the Lord's Supper? Why does it matter if some people believe that this really is the Lord's body and blood? And why does it matter if there are Christians and churches who just merely believe it's a memorial? Why does this matter? You should be asking that. We are not going to be a people that says that truth does not matter. That it doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe something. That's also humanism that has come down from the colleges down to kindergarten. We're not going to be a people that says it doesn't matter what you do with the Lord's Supper or why you do it that way as long as you're sincere with it. Why? Because that is not how relationships go, right? You want to be known and you want to be loved for exactly who you are. Not less than who you are and not more than who you are. And you've had relationships and friendships that have crumbled because that person had a perception of you that was more than what you really are. Or it crumbled because that person had a perception of less than who you are. You want to be known and loved for exactly who you are, right? Okay, good. Have you ever wondered why you have that desire? It's because you are made in the imagio de Deo, the image of God. That's why you feel this way. Why do you feel this way? Because God wants to be known and loved for exactly who he is. Not 110% and not 90%. 100% of who he is. Only God and God alone can truly know you and love you for who you really are. Because he created you. It's not just your mom and dad alone that created you. Because Psalm 139 says that he formed the unformed substance in your mama's womb. Anything less and anything more is subjectivism creeping into our church. So we are going to refocus our view of the Lord's Supper and observe it in a way that honors Jesus. Because we want to get to Jesus at the eschaton and said, we worked out all that you put into us to know you and love you and follow you for exactly the way that you commanded and outlined. That's our desire. So on one end, we cannot, in good moral conscience, go as far as transubstantiation. But on the other end, we must go farther than the Southern Baptist memorial view. And I love being a Southern Baptist. And that's why our church is still Southern Baptist. I don't know what tomorrow brings with our convention. But for today, we are still Southern Baptist. But we must go further than the memorial view. But let me say this initially about Southern Baptist. In part, over our history of the past couple hundred years, we have developed theology in response to not the Bible, but what other denominations have believed. We don't want to appear too Catholic, transubstantiation, so we pivot all the way back over here. So it's clear that we're not like them. We don't want to be like the charismatics, and they talk about the giftings of the Holy Spirit, so we pivot all the way over here, and we don't talk about it. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit's giftings. Some do. We do, and we have, and we will. This is generally. 
So at Heritage, we will believe that the Lord's Supper is less than transubstantiation, but it's far more than the memorial view. Is that okay with you? Okay. It's more than merely looking back at what Jesus has already done. Because a huge part of the Lord's Supper is looking forward to what Jesus will do. If you don't believe me, take a look at a verse that we often read first Sunday. 1 Corinthians 11, 26. Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you do? You proclaim. Now, I got I to hit you up, church. This word for proclaim is caruso, which is the Greek word for our English word preach. You're a preacher when you take the Lord's Supper. Oh, I don't talk. You're like Moses, right? Give me a mouthpiece. Give me Aaron. I don't talk to people about Jesus. No, no, no. To be a Christian means you're a proclaimer. When you take these elements today, you're a preacher. And what do you preach? The Lord's death until he comes. What's that? Lord's Supper is intimately wrapped up with eschatology. Sorry. When you take part in the Lord's Supper, you are preaching your belief that Jesus is your king and Jesus is your savior and your king and your savior will return again. That's why it's more than looking back. It's more than the memorial view. But there's more reasons that's outside the scope of today's hard saying. The Lord's Supper teaches eschatology. So in the Lord's Supper, we will look back at the first advent of Jesus. He, that, that's the hope. That's the certainty. His first advent is a confirmation that he will come again. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is so much more than a once-a-month tradition you just got to get through here at Heritage. But I have to say this. On the other hand, this ties beautifully to last Sunday's hard saying. But on the other hand, taking the Lord's Supper today does not make you right with God. In fact, if you're not a Christian, it doesn't do, any, it doesn't do anything for you. Physically, a little crumb doesn't do anything, but maybe awaken some hunger. And if you're not a Christian, there's absolutely nothing spiritually for you. There's nothing to spiritually nourish you. The Lord's Supper does not make you right with God, just as getting baptized doesn't make you right with God. What makes, what justifies a person before God is faith in his Son. These signs that you're going to hold in a moment serve a different function. They point to something deeper. So here's our focus. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a celebration. And it's a celebration by those who have a genuine desire, whom God has awakened a genuine desire to enjoy his son as their ultimate food, as their ultimate drink, as the ultimate sustenance for the soul. And you have to ask yourself for a moment, church. This is critical for our doctrine of the church, our ecclesiology. What kind of person desires to have Jesus as sustenance for the soul? Christians, those who have truly experienced the new covenant. Only the Christian, the one whom God the Father has given the gift of faith. Only those who've been put in a different position by God the Father to see and feel differently about his son. Therefore, I'm going to try to be as clear as possible. Only the regenerated, born again, new covenants receiving Christian 
should enjoy the Lord's Supper. So, Jesus is present in our congregational singing. And that should revolutionize why and how you sing. Because he's present here. Jesus is present in our congregational prayers. Jesus is present in our congregational teaching and preaching. And make no mistake, Jesus is present as we observe and celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not just a memorial. It's just not a literal, physical presence. The Lord's Supper is so much more than a 7 to 10 minute tradition that Heritage observes once a month. So our focus this year is to come to this table. Well, you don't come to it, it's brought to you. Our focus is to come to this table as our personal and our corporate expression of enjoying Jesus as our soul's satisfaction. And at the end of the day, only covenanted Christians with God and each other really enjoy Jesus and should enjoy the table. Only covenanted Christians with God and each other enjoy and experience something when we partake of these elements. It makes no sense for a person who does not believe Jesus is who he says he is or that he will do what he says that he's going to do to take the Lord's Supper. That is like you putting on my wedding ring. Can you literally do it? Just like can our deacons in just a moment pass out elements of people who really aren't Christians. That's possible. But that's just like me giving you my wedding ring. This represents my covenant with Tisa. This represents my covenant vows of all of you for all of me. To Christ I covenant, I make my vow. This means something to me. This means nothing to you. It's just metal. And same thing with your vows, right? We have to apply the same idea of sign and covenant to this. Even more, because this is a greater covenant than just this. This is actually a sign that points to the greatest of all covenants, the new covenant, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. So the same thing goes the Lord's Supper. But I pray for you, Heritage, that God will put you in a different position, namely to get you out of yourself, to get you out of self-absorption, outside of your own self. So the focus of life isn't about you so that you can see Jesus for who he truly is and what he says, and that you would believe who he is and what he says. And I'll invite our deacons to come up. So if this isn't you, if you don't believe who Jesus says he is, if you don't believe his promises about life, the Christian life, and the life to come, and that it's true, here's the thing, Heritage. We do not force you to take these elements. If that's not where you're at in life, that's okay. It's okay. If Jesus is not ultimate, that's okay. We don't force you to do anything. If your heart isn't for seeing Jesus as your ultimate authority and your ultimate affection, that's okay. But we pray that one day you will see that all that your body tells you is gold and all that this culture tells you is gold, that you will really find out that it's just glitter, that in essence it's just fool's gold. So we are glad that you are here. On the other hand, we don't want to force you to do anything that isn't a reflection of what's going on inside of you, okay? But, conversely, 
if you have the desire to enjoy Jesus as your ultimate affection and authority, although imperfect, and if you've expressed this in belonging to God and to each other, we encourage you experience the elements and enjoy what all of these elements represent. Life today, resurrection to come. So let us begin. Matthew 26, 26. Matthew writes, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. So now that I pray we are united on the truth that this bread represents your expression to find satisfaction in Jesus as bread and water for your soul, the question is, do you? Do you truly desire Jesus as the ultimate food and water for your soul? Do you have a heart to find Jesus as your ultimate satisfaction? And if not, what's in the way this Lord's Day? What is in the way? The answer is most likely you have replaced Jesus as the object of your ultimate satisfaction. And I have to ask you, before the church takes the Lord's Supper. If that is you, how is it going for you today? You've replaced Jesus with something else. You chose not to believe him and what he says and what he promises. You've done it. How's it going for you today? Are you just as anxious, anxiety-ridden as you were before? You've listened to yourself. You've listened to your network of friends over God. Are you now more satisfied than ever? How's that going for you? Well, you may say, I gave Jesus a try. I'm giving Jesus a try. I am here. Coming to church is not giving Jesus a try. Because you know you may have different motivations for being here. You don't want to hurt that loved one, so you're here. You don't want to hurt your personal relationships, so you're here. So what that's like, this is the crazy thing. It's like taking this literal element, taking a little crumb off of that, and expecting it to satisfy you. We know how that's going to go, right? But you think, I'm giving Jesus a try. Taking crumbs off of Jesus' table is not giving Jesus a try. Feasting on him is. 